Hello, welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Eric, my oh. co-host Curtis is here. Mm-hmm. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Ah, damn it. I'm not sure I'm ever going to not get you with that one. And we have a guest star today, who I mentioned last week, Samia Suleiman. How are you today? I'm... <laughs> okay! That's writing. <laughs> so, uh, don't ever fall for the trap of me asking you how you're doing on this podcast. Alright, okay. so we all have movies that we watched this week that we want to talk about. Curtis, you want to start with which ones you have? The only movie I watched on my own this week was The Mask of Zorro. Interesting! Yeah! So, I also watched the remake of The Thing from 2011, I want to say. And uh, I think that's it. Samia? I watched The World's End. And I watched... Is Edgar Wright, The World's End? Yes. Not This Is The End? No, not This Is The End. came out the same year and everyone mixes them up? (laughs) Correct. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, the thing. I think we also watched significant bits of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz to look at the uh, 4K box set release that we saw. But yeah, it's just like a neat small for our first guest star, uh, you know, group to talk about. And uh, I'm sure we'll all be excited to talk about 2011's The Thing. Uh, That was our shared experience for the week. So, Mm -hmm. Curtis, uh, why don't you kick things off? Because I think we've all seen The Mask of Zora. I think it's been a long time for Samia. Yeah, it's been a really long time. How much of it do you remember? I feel like I remember quite a bit. So that's a good jumping off point. The Mask of Zorro is, by all accounts, a, a pretty straightforward uh, action movie that follows the hero's journey pretty well. <laughs> that follows the hero's journey. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, this movie was directed by uh, Martin Campbell, mm-hmm. who also directed two James Bond movies, one GoldenEye, one Casino Royale. Uh, and, both uh, revamping the franchise. Both revamping the, the uh, franchise and bringing it out of, I guess, extinction. And mm, keep your hand away from that buzzer. <laughs> and he also uh, directed the Green Lantern movie. He's been making movies for like the past uh, three, four decades. I'm trying to think of a good way to describe this, he has a a knack for directing action. Uh. I don't think there's enough, like, so anyway. Like, he has a unique way of let's just expressing say, action. One of the, the things that, like, stands out, there are several scenes that invoke seduction. Uh, Chemistry. One, the uh, romance in the movie is actually fairly fleshed out. On top of that, Catherine Zeta-Jones' character is a strong female character. She is not a prop. Yeah. Her character's screen time is is mostly devoted to their relationship and some of her trying to discover the mystery of her past growing up. I mean, it, yes, but there's also a bit of conflict between the uh, two. Like, uh, throughout the entire movie, she actually takes action against Antonio Banderas, trying to take back what uh, he has stolen. She definitely has her own agency. She sets herself apart from everyone else. They're having a political d- discussion and she is singled out. By having a different opinion where she is expressing the Leia line from a Star Wars. The tighter you hold on to other people, the more will slip through your fingers. It's the essence of what she's getting across and everyone else is disagreeing with her. But she stands firm in those beliefs. During the final scene, she actually goes and saves people from being jailed and being killed by the explosion in the finale. So she exhibits convictions and follows through on them with agency by her actions in the movie. So she comes across as a strong female character. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so strong still gets you a point, but I'm, you know, happy you made the point. 
<laughs> Fuck. <laughs> and then you have the mentor-student relationship between Anthony Hopkins and, and Antonio Banderas, and it's something you've seen a thousand times before, and it comes off as uh, sincere and... Uh, Is realistic a judgmental term? I wouldn't say that. Okay, in which case they have a realistic mm. relationship? Yeah, realistic's a good way to describe their uh, dynamic, and there's... An I, gotta, odd... I gotta disagree. I do think everything in this movie is in some form of heightened reality. I, I think it's not too far into a heightened reality, but I, I think that the relationships are romanticized. Revenge is a romanticized, you know, theme. Right. And, uh, you know, there are so many things in this, like the, the idealized Zorro, and then he meets this grounded, grudgy, revenge-holding Zorro, and right. then this uh, mentor takes shape over the idea that he's going to have to turn him into the romantic idea of yeah. Zorro, but also make him fully appreciate what that symbol or idea of a character means. Yes. And I feel like... It's almost, this story has a lot of the story points as, say, a Marvel superhero origin story. When mm -hmm. I reviewed The Mask of Zorro on Rizzle, I made a couple of comments. One was that it was quintessential, not the best, but the quintessential blockbuster. Okay. I'm talking about, like, archetypal boil down to the bare bones of what it is. So when you take a blockbuster and you think... Oh, well, blockbusters are those popcorn movies with explosions and things that people tend to say, okay. you know, in reference to them. Sure. You know, this movie has your bare bones explosions. It has a romance. It has action. It has adventure. It has a hero who goes through the, the hero's John journey. Campbell uh, based hero's journey, which is popular in blockbusters since Star Wars. Yep. And you have... Trying to think of any other elements. Like, if you think a car chase, there is a, you know, horse chase, a time period appropriate equivalent to that. Yes. Where there's a lot of stunt work involved. You know, there, there is really no element that you can see in a blockbuster movie that you don't get some form of in this movie. Right. A YouTuber that I like to follow, Patrick Willems, released a video that I showed to Curtis earlier that I feel like really breaks down the Elements of the movie that are unique in relation to other action movies yeah. and adventure movies of the time. And he uses that to inform opinions about more modern action movies and superhero movies. Right. And the second point that I brought up on the Rizzle video is something he brought up in his video. Uh, the movie is technically whitewashed because um, even Antonio Banderas is not uh, Mexican. He is Spanish. And... In a sense, the implication is that all these characters, including Antonio Banderas, are Mexican. But you... Catherine Zeta-Jones is Welsh. The and Anthony Hopkins is Welsh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, they... the There is one thing where it's this character has stood the test of time for so long, and yet... They never get the nationality for the actor, right? Well, so far. So far. You know, obviously it's a property that's not, you know, gonna like, go away. Yeah. Like it was a chance it's for representation. Did they don't. But they didn't do it back then. They probably would now if they made a Zorro now. I know that uh, I used to watch the old Zorro series 
on Disney Channel at nighttime back in the 90s, I believe. Oh, uh, yeah, with your brother, right? With my brother. So to the best of your memory, how does this hold up to the appeal of that show and the character that you remember? It It goes towards that in that it seems like the mentor was probably the Zorro that was on the Disney Channel show. That's nice. I set this one up as if you you compare yeah. it to the other one, so well, you did well, a great job of like, yeah, nah, I well, gotcha. Well, here's the thing. That's actually true, because Don De La Vega is the Zorro in those Disney shows, as far as I'm aware, and Don De La Vega is the Anthony Hopkins character, who is passing on the role of Zorro to Antonio Banderas' character. This is just information. Uh-huh. He was like one of my first crushes. Zorro, the original. <laughs> so, the thing about Mask of Zorro that sticks out to me is doing things in camera. So when you revisit this, you're seeing real stuntmen doing real things that... <laughs> I can't say it's impressive or incredible no, or anything it's like, like that. But what you're saying is that everything you're seeing on screen actually happened during the uh, filming. It's nothing is, is added after the effects, after the event. For better or worse, what you don't see anymore are extended s- sequences of stunt work where characters are uh, sword fighting or uh, interacting with one another in a way that isn't, um, that is in wide shots and, and rhythmic edits versus, you know, quick edits yeah. in order to cover sequences and mm-hmm. make them feel more intense through editing rather than uh, through choreography and whatnot and so yeah yeah. speaking of choreography the uh fun little tidbit the person they brought on to do the choreography for the sword fighting in this movie is a guy named bob anderson who helped with the choreography in the princess bride in the special features they he goes into everything that went into getting these uh sword fights down and how everything is incredibly staged and if the actors went even a hair off of what was practiced he would cut it instantly and they would do it again just so no one would get hurt Outside of the actors, the entire movie was filmed in Mexico with a mass majority Mexican staff with uh, a person who did the costume design was uh, a study of outfits from the proper age and designed everything based on that. And even uh, made sure that there were differences between Anthony Hopkins' Zorro costume and Antonio Banderas' costume. So there are slight differences based on their own personalities as well. It's just striking visuals and incredible action sequences, incredible stunt work. I'm going to rack up a total for the rest of my life. The Mask of Zorro is an amazing movie, <laughs> and I understand the flaws in it, in its story, and in what it is, but it is... <sighs> if you haven't watched it, it's just the ultimate treat for some weekend or some day where you don't have anything else going on. <laughs> if you could elongate the button right there would have been the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be great. <laughs> anyway, so outside of that, uh we did watch uh The Thing from 2011 starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh so Samia, why don't you uh talk about th- this is the question that we kind of try to ask each other is what do you feel like is important to talk about when it comes to the thing? This the thing. I think the importance lies in comparing the original the thing and this the thing. Curtis, any comment on that comment? 
What do you mean by the original The Thing? Nah, I roll. Um, Hawks I, or Carpenter is the better question. Oh, I see. I see. No, I mean uh, Carpenter. Okay. Um, because that's what it's supposed to be a prequel of. And I think the other important piece is probably independently the storyline from the visual effects. Yeah. Independently, not... Why? Why do you? Would you want to single those out? Why would you want to separate those? <laughs> That's a good um, question. There, I think it is important to <gasps> talk about CGI and how it is in the movie, how it's used as a tool, how it's used in the movie, and talk about the plot and the actors just on its own what i would say is uh basically a researcher is pulled to antarctica and then her participation in the work that they're doing is second guessed really frequently as they dig up an alien that begins to show signs of being able to replicate itself take over and recreate human bodies until the researchers at the base realize that this is a life form that is trying to escape the Antarctic and they don't know who the thing could be at any different point in time. And so insecurity builds among the crew members. Now, what is the difference between the story I just described for this movie and the story that was described for the thing in 1982? The difference is the main character that we're following. The main character is a paleontologist in this, and the main character we followed was Kurt Russell in the other one, who's, I guess, a helicopter pilot? I'm not and sure what he I is. I feel like there was a stand-in for his character with Joel Edgerton in this movie, yeah. Yeah. but Mary Elizabeth Winstead, as a researcher, as a scientist, it's, she's sort of like if a slightly more vulnerable MacReady were combined with the Wilford Brimley character from the original. I was literally just thinking that. I would actually say there's not a whole lot of difference story-wise between the 1982 The Thing and this one. They they follow very similar story beats, and they and both movies play on paranoia. The difference is how they play on the paranoia. One, what do you mean? The remake plays on the characters in the story's paranoia, where the characters themselves are being affected. While that does happen in the 1982 movie, there are certain editing decisions that help the audience play into that paranoia that makes it more immersive. I was going to say the thing in this movie uh, does slightly more to manipulate the characters in the movie um, with someone trying to trick the protagonist into being alone, uh, you know, by playing on their paranoia and seeming to understand it immediately. And it lies blatantly, frequently uh, about a Russian base, about uh, a couple of other things. You know, it, it sort of tries to engage on a way that seems to imply it understands humans more than it feels like it understood humans in the original, which takes place after this. Yeah. So in this movie, we got to watch the characters become paranoid with each other and we watched that play out while in the original we got to share in the paranoia itself where we weren't sure who was the thing and who wasn't in this movie it felt like the thing wanted to stalk people and and get them more while i felt like in the 
John Carpenter one, it felt like the thing mostly wanted to survive. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's what it felt like to I me. Think I can it, understand what you're saying. Yeah. So get people. Uh, the creature hides its identity and stays out of sight more frequently, but oddly, I think that's appropriate based on the narrative built. <laughs> okay. So you have a creature that is trying to get to civilization. And so what you end up with is in the early half of this story, if 2011 is the first half of the story, 1982 is the second half, you have this creature laying under the surface and trying to grab people and trying to get away multiple times, tries to get away in a helicopter, tries to get away in a truck tries to get away by tricking Mary Elizabeth Winstead into going to this Russian base. By the time we get to the second half of the story, the 1982 version, the creature seems a lot more reserved and patient and only exposes itself when it's basically in self-defense mode, not when it's has someone trapped and is trying to take over. We only see it. But the thing is, that is happening. It's just happening off screen because we know characters are taken over by the thing. We just never see them in a room and see the thing turning mm, into it. Yeah. So you're saying that the focus of the camera, kind of going back to what Curtis was saying, the focus of the camera in John Carpenter's version was the audience's paranoia. Yes. And then originally this is, again, the character's, the character's point of view. Right. Can I ask you both something? Sure. That puts you directly in danger of getting a point. Oof. Okay. How do you feel about the presented rule in the 2011 version that the thing cannot replicate inorganic matter? If we go by the definition that something containing carbon can be replicated by this creature. Basically, they take the blood test a step further into uh, showing that this thing can't replicate metal pieces of things and people. And yet... The thing seems to either be able to replicate clothes or replicate people and then know exactly how to wear their clothes, except for small mistakes like an earring. So I guess to answer your question from earlier, how does it affect this movie? It adds to the paranoia by the creature removing any sense of positivity and only having this way to only some of the time get a positive reading and other times it'd be a false positive because as they say in the movie, you can kill someone... for having good dental hygiene. But we don't know based on the movie that it could cause a false positive. Like, there's there's no validation for the theory of just not being able to replicate, right. like, metal and all that. None of the characters are, are falsely identified as a creature of the thing. They're, they're just suspected of. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a unique way of having different ways of assessing whether someone is it or not from the two different movies. So it's not like exactly the same movie twice. They use a different method, which I think is well, it's creative. I mean, you don't yeah. necessarily have to have a scene in a movie where they figure out how to test whether someone is the thing or not. You know? So technically it is an excuse to do the same scene over again. Sure. In my opinion. I I, I can I I see where you're coming from. Yeah. But I would argue that uh, to me, since this is a prequel, uh, the implication of the thing being caught because of an earring mm-hmm. 
uh, since the thing is clearly, even though we don't see this on screen, wearing and replicating clothes, by extension, basically what I feel like happens is the screenwriters came up with this rule that gave finality to the question of whether or not Childs is the thing at the end of the movie. And they tried to undo that clarity by letting you know that the thing got caught once for not having an earring. Right. So it and would have learned by the end of the 1982 yeah. thing to not make that mistake. Right. Uh. Samia, would you like, as our guest, to give your impression of uh, the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy and how you feel about the world's end? Um, specifically, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the world's end. I think it's a look at people evolving through time in their lives and a character that hasn't evolved through time and then I guess it gets really bizarre and then it starts talking about like the evolution of humanity period (laughs) but um, it's very character driven in the beginning where I think people can probably examine their own lives and their own loved ones and stuff in comparison to the characters. And then also with the movie, have an existential crisis (laughs) about humanity. (laughs) There's like a vehicle for the audience through an existential crisis with the lead. Yes. Uh, Uh, Nick Frost plays a serious character versus in the other two, he is the, the sillier character Shaun of the dead he's nick frost's character is uh talked to as the character who is quote holding back sean yeah and then in hot fuzz he's not necessarily holding him back in fact he's a character that inspires growth in the main character in not you right. know taking things so seriously but he is silly That's he is a more silly you could say bumbling character for good or bad based on whether or not you enjoy that. Um, Mm -hmm. listener trying to (laughs) catch and keep tally. Um, and so in this character, in this movie, there's a role reversal. It feels like the character Mm. that's been growing through Nick Frost Mm. is now handed off to Mm. Simon Pegg and vice versa. Right. Where Nick Frost's character based on his attachment, all of these characters based on their attachment to, uh, Simon Pegg's character, Gary King, are all dragged along, in a way, yeah. by his... I guess his his antics is a good way to say it. I, I don't know, his, antics, it's just his drive to, to yeah. go back in the past right. and live and, and stay there. Right, and there is something about that that I did want to ask you about. This is, it seems that this movie is, it, it focuses on specifically stunted growth and how that can affect someone. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm glad you segued there. There are some very serious mental health stuff tackled in this movie very indirectly. <laughs> um, there are implications. There are things they show you. And if you don't catch them, you wouldn't catch them. Uh, Simon Pegg's character is revealed to, you know, he's a pathological liar. We know this. Uh, he refuses to show his wrists when he's trying to prove that he's human. And ultimately, when his wrists are revealed, you find that he it has still bandaged wounds. So Simon Pegg uh, cut his wrist, put his own life at risk, and clearly ended up in an inpatient hospital where he says they told him when he could go to bed. And he is seen at the beginning of the movie sitting around in a support group circle where he's trying to process where his life was great, and then it, that speech ends with, and it never did. 
And in total, you know clearly what happened to him and why he's trying to relive the glory day in his past. And so that ultimately is the behind the scenes uh, mental health concerns that, you know, present itself. It's almost like all of these other things are dodging and coping with life never being what he wanted it to be. Like he never got off his feet and became, you know, an adult. And you kind of get to see how people deal with toxic people in their lives because sometimes toxic people can or be don't mentally deal with them. yeah or don't yeah. deal with them just accommodate them continually right. right 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 because we want our people to get the help they need but we also have to take care of ourselves gary never uh changes gary yeah. ends the movie by pulling a lever to finish his last tap of beer Mm-hmm. And then has a rant about how toxic he is and basically makes the case to Bill Nye's voice character, we're toxic, get over it. And then they let the whole world end because he'd rather not change. It just happens to be fortunate for Gary that in the end, this allows him to continue to live out his fantasy of leading the young versions of his friends. And the only indication that we get that anything has changed and I feel like this is because his outside world reflects his dreams for inside the world, mm-hmm. is that he's drinking tap water instead of beer. Right. To me, that's why I feel like there's a lot more depth to the movie, because over the last decade, we've been obsessed with nostalgia. We've been obsessed with the 80s. We've been obsessed with trying to relive the things that we enjoyed as children. There is something to be said for a movie that depicts that drive to do that, leading to basically the collapse of society (laughs) and having to reform what we value in our lives in order to survive in a world like that. It's a lot deeper, I think, than people give it credit for, so fuck me! One of the things that always stood out to me with the uh, movie is it's something that you pointed out to me years ago, and it it goes to Edgar Wright. Each of the bars that they go to foreshadows something that's going to happen in the story later on like there's a pub close to the end of the wall called hole in the wall and there's literally a hole in the wall made by a car being driven into it and the bar where they first fight the uh, aliens is a bar called the cross arms which in britain that's a common colloquial term meaning to work together and it's the first time that they work together in the movie so every bar has some sort of like comedic or significant uh story point throughout the script yes I recommend that uh, listeners watch the behind the scenes for all three of the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy, particularly because of the insight it gives you into the writing of the stories and the stories that you get from them themselves of why they make certain decisions in terms of dialogue. And So, Samia, which one is your favorite out of the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy? You can't do that to me. Okay, all right, I won't do that to you. <laughs> um, it's the world's end. <laughs> Oh, wow. There is so much to unpack with the relationships between the characters, with the implications of the story in that one. The World's End is something that when I go back to it every once in a while, uh, my brain just turns off and I watch it on one level. And at other times when I feel like there are certain significant relevant world events happening, it engages my brain on a different level. Um... So I just really hope that Edgar Wright knows, even though that was, seemed to be a hard shoot, that it was worth it. I tweeted that at him once. So. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there, there's a famous quote that Bruce Campbell once said. You're the one who told, told, told me this quote, so do you want to say it? 
make oh, a film the easier just to watch? It's not him. It's the director of Evil Dead once said... Um, there we go. Films that are easy to make are hard to watch. There we go. I would agree. Um, and there's a lot of that, I think, with the movies that we watched, where, you know... We never really touched on the, the concept of CGI in The Thing. And... I don't really think there's much that we can talk about that hasn't already been discussed at length. There is a great video on YouTube breaking down behind the scenes on how they attempted to use practical effects for the majority of the movie and then were asked by a studio to basically paint over them with digital effects that you can you can believe for yourself what you feel like that does to the movie. Right, and even going back to The Mask of Zorro, uh, Martin... Uh, Campbell has said that Mask of Zorro, in his opinion, is probably one of his most physically taxing films that he's ever made. And uh, by some reports from the internet, they were able to actually uh, update that movie with a 4K scan from the original camera negative, not a print of the film, the original camera negative, because of how little they did digitally. So they didn't have to redo a lot of the post-production digital effects and things. So... Uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that's the level of effort that goes into that yeah. movie. All these little things you see. You mentioned uh, just a glint running down the blade of the sword. Oh, right. That was Antonio Banderas's idea. Yeah, and the glint itself is a practical effect where he actually tilted the sword into the sun, into the camera's lens, so it would actually give that sheen. That's mm. so... It, and, it's um, practical and it's hard to do. I think it took, but oddly enough, it took him three tries to actually get that on 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 camera. That's it's, also very action movie. It is. Uh, so, are there any other takeaways uh, from the movies that we watched this week that any of you would like to add, especially our first guest? I really appreciate Samia for guest starring uh, for this episode and being our first guest. I, mm-hmm. I really am thankful for that. Thank everybody for listening. Uh, you can follow me, Eric, at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. Uh, Curtis? You can follow me at 90sGamer407 on Twitter. And if you look up Samia Cosplay on Facebook, S-A-M-I-A-C-O-S-P-L-A-Y, uh, you can find her. You can look at a lot of the work that she's done. She is, in my opinion, a very talented... <laughs> Uh, artist and, uh, you know, cosplay enthusiast. Uh, any final thoughts or anything? Nope. No, I think we're good. All right. So thank you all for listening. And remember, if you like this, go check out some of the other podcasts on the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network.